It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Hey, sports fans. Coach Nick here, and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown and our new podcast. And I'm pleased to have a returning guest, Ben Alomar, who is now the director of analytics at ESPN. Uh, Ben, thanks for coming on the show to talk about analytics. And, uh, you know, I thought we could start by talking about your new digs and and how that's going over at ESPN. Uh, It's great. Thanks for having me back, Nick. Um, The ESPN has been fantastic. We've had a lot of um, exciting new stuff that we're working on now uh, in, in the NBA world, the biggest thing we're working on is what we call the, the Basketball Power Index, which is a predictive tool that helps us look at the rest of the season, rank teams, you know, predict things about what's going to happen in the playoffs uh, going forward, see how incredibly imbalanced the conferences are, um, things like that. So how are you uh, building these things? I guess without giving away all the special sauce, it seems <laughs> like you need to do what strength of schedule and, and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's, we, what we have is a, a model that looks that takes into account who you're playing, where you're playing, so you know home road, t- you know, days rest. Um, we also look because we we're trying to build the most predictive model possible. We take into account um, the prior expectations of the team at the very beginning of the season. So you know how Vegas basically expects a team to perform during the season. That's part of our model as well. And we found that that piece has made it uh, really uh, far more predictive than models that are just based on this year's data. So are you trying to, can you test this by like going backwards and looking at pre- previous seasons so you know how accurate it is? That's exactly what we do. In fact, we take, when we estimate the model, we take a sample of the data, set it aside, and use that to test the accuracy of the model. So uh, when we do that, we, the model is about 73% accurate when it comes to predicting games. Okay, Wow. Uh, we had an issue because we have a similar uh, model as well that we've been using. And the question we have is, you know, what happens when, you know, all of a sudden Kevin Durant goes down for an extended period of time? Or in OKC's uh, example, when cancer gets an ankle injury and they all, everyone starts getting injured, uh, how easy is it to update that to reflect that going forward? Well, right now, we, what we do is we don't take that directly into account because w- when we estimate the model, we don't take that into account in the historical data either. So when, I, when our sample size, sample includes you know, the Derrick Rose-less Bulls, um, that sort of idea that the, the probability that you can lose a player is already sort of baked in. Uh, and then as the model progresses during the season, and, you know, with the Thunder this year, you know, them, that they don't have Durant is now baked into uh, the data that we have. And so um, we find that that's been incredibly, you know, useful and predictive to, and, you know, we'd like to eventually get to a place where we have a really good adjustment, but we don't want want to do an adjustment that just, just to have an adjustment that doesn't make the, you know, doesn't, that makes the model worse. So, um, okay, I I hear you. That's the one thing that we were trying to talk about is like, I wanted to make sure how accurate this is. It seems like in theory, you could simulate the rest of the games or X amount of games that you know is going to be out. Um, you know, and then quickly come to an idea of like how that affects their win-loss record, I suppose. Um, you know, this is really exciting stuff. Now, when you got to ESPN, were there like new things that you learned that you hadn't thought about as far as, you know, analytics and how they apply? Well, in terms of the, the NBA, there wasn't, we, we sort of built this stuff uh, as, as I got there. I have a great uh, analyst that works on my team, Zach Bradshaw, who's got some NBA experience as well. And he was really the driving force of building up this model. Um, in working with him and, and, and seeing the accuracy we get from uh, building it with the prior expectations, uh, that, that's been fantastic. Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about the article that I read last week uh, that you published on ESPN about the Rookie of the Year, because I thought it was pretty um, compelling stuff that you were presenting. Certainly, there's a, a media notion of what's 
who's leading the league in, uh, in Rookie of the Year and in MVP and all these different things. Uh, and then there are the uh, cold, hard reality, I suppose. Yeah. So talk to us. What was the genesis of this idea? What made you decide to really put your analytic eye on this race specifically? Well, so at the, going into the season, uh, I actually wrote a piece on, on Alfred Payton then because, you know, w during the draft this last year, I was with the Cavaliers and our modeling there had Alfred doing pretty well. Uh, and so he was a player that I was interested in from the very beginning. And I, I thought, you know, before Oladipo got injured at the beginning of the season, you know, maybe the Magic even sneak into the playoffs if he gets to the level we, we thought he would get to. And so as the season progressed and I kept checking in on him, he kept, you know, playing well and well, and you just didn't hear his name at all in any discussion of anything. And he's having a pretty remarkable season. And, you know, compared to, you know, Wiggins came in and everybody knows his name, you know, involved in the big trade, first pick in a draft and he scores and he scores. And so that's really what is driving a lot of this, the, to me, at least the, the interest in him as rookie of the year, why he's doing so well in that. Um, and so I just felt like Alfred's name should be in this conversation for sure, because he's really had a remarkable season. Okay, interesting. So, I mean, it sounds a bit like, you know, the spin move dunks that Wiggins gets on, a, uh, on occasion or more often now recently. Uh, th that's sort of what sort of influences the race. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the uh, Rookie of the Year is also voted on by media. Is that right? Yes. Yes. That's so, where it comes from. So, and then, because I had a, a very spirited debate on, um, on Twitter the other day about the MVP race, because when you, when you think about it, it's a little bit like the Oscars where you, we, we seem to understand that most of the Academy members don't watch hardly any of the movies they're voting on. And I know from my experience, all I do all day is watch NBA games, and I haven't seen uh, the Nets play a game in two months, right? <laughs> so there's no way that you can watch all the games and really yeah. know what you're voting on. So what is your take, especially being an analytics guy, should we allow the media guys, and especially if they're like play-by-play -play guys who are so busy with their teams every other night doing a game, they, there's no way they're watching. Should we change this so that maybe people who are studying this a little bit more carefully get to vote? Well, I mean, I did, you know, what, what is the purpose of the award? I mean, I think, I think it's fine to have the media vote on it. I don't, you know, and that, that's really, you know, the power of analytics is that it helps us really see all the games right away. Like you can, you, you get the data from every single game they're included. We haven't missed the game of Alfred Payton in our, uh, uh, in our analysis. And so, you know, it's up to people who work with the data and, and can interpret the data to, you know, inject the people into the conversation that maybe aren't in the conversation properly. Okay, I like okay, I like that. So that, that's basically what maybe what you were doing then is to make sure now, and then what in turn what I'm doing is making sure that even more people hear about it because I don't know it didn't exactly like I don't know if it, like it lit the the discussion on fire as far as moving the needle when I I think that you're right and I love when when you can get into there and realize oh my goodness here's a guy that's not getting any love and yeah. it's primarily because he's he's not winning and he's in a smaller market would you say, well I guess that that's the question is. The market's not any smaller in Orlando as it is in Minnesota, right? No, no. And that's why it's, it's name recognition about Wiggins that draws the attention to begin with. And he's playing it well enough now that he can, you can justify it. And if you don't look back at the, if you don't take the season as a whole as the, the basis of judgment, you know, Wiggins is playing fine right now. Still not, to my mind, as well as, as what Alfred is doing. But, you know, you take the entire season into account and what Wiggins has accomplished is fine. It's good. He's gonna, you know, he looks like he's gonna be a good player. Uh, Alfred is on a list that includes Chris Paul, Jason Kidd, and Nate McMillan. That's the list of people who have done what Alfred's done this season, and you know, two of those guys were Rookie of the Year. So, you know, because he get, has no name recognition, and the Magic are terrible, and you know, they had one national TV game this year. Alfred had triple double in that game, but um, you know, they just they don't get the attention. So, you know, it may be too late. To, to really have a serious conversation around him. A lot of people's minds are already made up. But uh, at least his name will, you know, to some extent, you know, if we work together here, we can get his name out there a little bit more. Well, sure. I mean, I've, uh, I've actually had the opportunity uh, last year, or was it the year before? I can't remember now, where I did a thing where it was, was uh, is Isaiah Thomas better than Kyrie Irving? And yeah. I use a lot of numbers to show that, like, in the context of everything, he was every bit as good. Actually, this was before last season. So everyone screamed at me and thought I was the dumbest person in the world. But then all of last season, he kept putting up, you know, 20 and 5 and doing really well. 
And yep. everyone started to say, you know, he's a lot better. And I didn't even know, I don't think I wanted to imply that he is better, but I think, right, the notion was he deserved to be in more of the conversation than he had been up until that point. Now, talk about the historical context of what Alfred Payton is doing this year. You mentioned that he's one of a few players that have done certain things, but give us those numbers. What exactly has been so special about this year? Okay, so his assist percentage is over 30%. So that means that 30% of the made field goals uh, that his teammates make while he's on the court, he's assisting on those. So that's the first cutoff. And that's, you know, we expect point guards to do about that level. Though Damian Lillard has never hit 30% for a season. Um, and so, so that, that, that's a pretty good bar to start with. Then you look at his steal rate and you look at, um, at, at how he rebounds. And he's just, had, you know, it, it really slices the, the, the crop of rookies way, way down to just these four guys. Wow. So, so steal rate and assist rate, which obviously for his position are, are pretty vital, are the two things that he's doing uh, really well. I, I suppose there are some detractors that might look at some things. Uh, what do you think that those things are about Alfred Payton? Well, he's a terrible shooter. I mean, there, there's no <laughs> way around it. He, shooting free throws is not his thing uh, right now. Though, uh, to be fair to him, He's improved. His, when you look at his, his free throw percentage and his general shooting percentage over the course of the season, they've gotten better. And I think over the last month, he shot his, you know, his two-point shooting percentage is about the same as Wiggins over that, you know, the last month or so. Hmm. And so, you know, he, he, he's not a great scorer, but we knew that going in. Like, you knew it from looking at his college numbers, they were historically bad uh, when it comes to his free throw shooting. But they're getting better, and, you know, he's, he does so much else. He has this huge positive impact when he's on the court for the Magic, a positive impact that Wiggins just doesn't have. So let's talk a little bit about plus minus because that tends to be a real uh, a hot button when you're talking with analytics guys, at least, uh, yeah. about wh how you know, valuable that number is. Um, what are you looking at as far as on-off? Are you looking at net rating? Are we talking about uh, Rapham? What are we looking at here? So what I look at is uh, points per 100 possessions on offense and points per 100 possessions on defense. Now, there is uh, you know some serious issues with plus minus and, and, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan but these situations the, the Timberwolves and the Magic are really similar so they, it makes the situation a little bit more uh, comparable you have two terrible teams and you have guys who when they're on the court and, and off the court uh, you know Wiggins has a plus 5.5 overall uh, and you know uh, Wiggins sorry Alfred has plus 5.5 overall Wiggins is net zero um, and so that's a big big difference and then you look at some of the more advanced plus minus, you know, real plus minus that we have at ESPN, and it, same story. Alfred is, you know, head and shoulders above uh, Wiggins. Really? So, okay, so basically what, what we can say when we stand back is that at the very least, apples being apples and teams being, you know, as comparable as we can, when Alfred is out there, he is helping his team a lot more than, than Wiggins, even independent of how good and how much talent each team has. It, it, it sure looks that way. And, and you know, we, it, there's every indication that we have about plus minus kinds of stats favor Alfred significantly. Uh, when we look at the hard stats and, and, you know, the skill stats, you know, really for what we expect them to do for the role they're supposed to play, you know, uh, Alfred, again, is head and shoulders above. So let's talk a little bit about what uh, Orlando is doing because they've drafted a number of terrific athletes uh, and good people. I feel like they're high character, high athletic guys who just happen to not be able to shoot very well at all. Yeah. So have you looked at a lot of the stats and realized over the course of a career, are there certain things that might be more variable than others that they could rely on to improve like shooting? Well, I, I think so. Player development generally in the NBA is one of the things that I don't think is done very well. And so I think when teams are, you know, commit to saying, look, here's a skill we think we can teach. We think we can teach and improve shooting. May not ever get to Steph Curry level shooting, but we can improve it. Um, then you can. I, I think you know it doesn't happen a lot, but I think when you really try to and make it put an organizational effort behind improving shooting, it will happen. Um, you know, just very anecdotally, when Scott Brooks came into and became the coach of the Thunder, you can see the free throw shooting percentage jumped way up. Uh, and, and it wasn't just numbers. It was it was a, a, a real goal of, of, of the team when he came in. He brought that in as a goal. It was like, we need to get better shooting free throws, and they did. And that was just one small piece, but you really can improve it if, if you commit to it. 
Do you ever have any interactions with NBA teams at all? Uh, I, I did for many years, uh, you know, and, and I'd certainly at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, we, we, uh, it was good to catch up with all those people. So was it like as a consulting basis? Were you actually like trying to, you know, help them with their – remind me of your background. I oh, can't remember. Okay. So were... for, for five years, I was the uh, director of analytics for the Oklahoma City Thunder. For okay. two years, I was director of analytics for the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, I was always a consultant part-time guy, but uh, I helped build the analytics groups for both of those teams. So great. So let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, whenever I go to Sloan, a lot of times the all the analytics guys from the different teams, like, they'll come up to me and they'll be really excited because – I kind of help them a little bit with the basketball knowledge because they're simply, you know, doing the matrix stuff. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and then they also, a lot of times the, the lament is that there's they can't quite get any of their information to the team. The coaches seem to have a wall built up and they don't want to cloud the players' minds with all this extra stuff. And um, I'm kind of curious how, how easy that was to pass information back and forth. So I think that uh, coaches naturally, and they should be, very protective of their players and what gets told to their players. I mean, absolutely, it's, it's not the analyst, analyst's job to communicate stuff to the players at all. Uh, most analysts would fail miserably trying to do that. Uh, but what the analyst's job is, is to communicate well with the coaching staff to explain what they've got, what's useful, what can actually help the team win. Um, and, and that's challenging because, you know, often analysts go down the path of what they think is most interesting and most valuable. But really the path to actually be most effective with the coaching staff is to find out what's most interesting to them. What are the areas that they feel like they need the most support from the analytics group, from the data, and provide them with that? Uh, and then once you get hooked up and you've, you've built that relationship with them, then you can start pushing the stuff that you may think is more interesting. You know, what's interesting is, is a lot of times when we're talking with coaches, what they want to see more often and what they end up doing, I think, a lot of, or maybe even more than anything else, is charting the plays that other teams run. And I'm curious, you know, you probably have your finger on the pulse of, like, what's happening with SportView. I'm assuming you have a good connections there and, and what you're yeah. doing at ESPN. So, you know, I, I've talked to them and tried to, to sort of give them some insight into, like, how maybe that could work. Do you have any feeling, are we close to getting to a point where the uh, the cameras will be able to identify specific sets that teams are running? Oh, yeah. I think we're really close to that. I think if you look at some of the work that's being done uh, by companies like Second Spectrum, uh, they've been able to identify, you know, on, on a pick and roll, the type of defense is being played by by the defender. Uh, and so, you know, whether they're going over or under the pick, you know, whether it's, a, you know, what kind of, is there, are they showing, what what is it? Uh, and, and so they're already doing that. And it's not many steps forward to identify actual plays happening as opposed to just, you know, you know slices of plays. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, because you know, a lot of times I'd say, well, you know, if, if it was horns, for instance, that's easy to identify because once you see two big men going to the corners of the foul line and then two guys in the corners, then, then the computer, in my mind, would be able to say, okay, that's, that's like a horn set, for instance. Yeah. And uh, that would be exciting. You know, what we had done in the playoffs last year is we were plotting where um, LeBron started the offensive possession, uh, not what the result, not, not where he shot it from, but where he started from. And yeah. we, we gained some really valuable insight. We, we knew that if he started the offense in the left corner, he wasn't going to shoot it. And to me, uh, that kind of spatial analysis also, which is a little bit separate from obviously the plays, it, it could also be probably maybe even more crucial because that might be a little bit more of a bite-sized thing that a team could handle and actually apply. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean those kinds of things are, are you know, you know starting to understand the value of what the sport view data is. It's so incredibly valuable to understand, you know, where players get the ball, where they like to get the ball, what happened, changes and outcomes when they get the ball in different places, uh, you know, whether, you know, what kind of defensive sets are, are most effective against different players and different, you know, offenses, offensive styles. I mean, all of that is, is coming through this data, and it's, it's, it's exciting stuff. Is there any other thing that's coming out aside from like I know you're the new uh, the, the power rankings that you're developing? Uh, anything else that's coming out that we should be looking forward to from ESPN? Well, we're uh, hope, hopefully we're going to have draft projections coming up. Uh, you know, when we get closer to that, and we'll be simulating out the um, the, the playoffs this year, we we can project each each series. One one project that I'm sort of interested in right now that we're working on is simulating out the NBA playoffs as if we took the top 16. So let's go conference free for a second. Let's go. Uh, let's look at the top sixteen. See how that changes things when when we get to the playoffs. Oh, I like that. Are you a proponent of going to that kind of format? 
Uh, I am if we go all in on it. Like, I, I think if we get rid of the conferences and schedule as if we don't have conferences, I think that's fantastic. Uh, um, I think, you know, as long as we have conferences, it's sort of, you know, there's a sort of a bias in, in unless you use BPI to do to, to take your top 16. Uh, there's a bias in, in, in how we do the scheduling. Some teams will be, you know, play more Eastern Conference teams. Uh, and but right now, I mean, the difference between the two conferences is so stark. It's not it, it, it really it's unfair to some of those Western Conference teams not making the playoffs. Oh, for sure. Oh, I think it's also unfair to us because we, <laughs> we want to see those those better matchups. I would imagine, right? That would generate more interest, more money, more everything for everybody. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Western Conference playoffs that that bracket this year is going to be fantastic. I mean, every team in the, the in the Western Conference playoffs is a top eight BPI team. Um, there are only two, you know. Then, therefore, in the Eastern Conference, which makes that you know far less interesting. But uh, yeah, so to, to, to spread that out and have those great matchups across, you know, every night, everywhere, every time we, we play, that would certainly be a better thing. Oh, uh, you know, it's funny. We did an, an interesting article. Where we tried to track the origin of when the West became so much better than the East. I'm just kind of curious. Have you guys looked at any kind of historical data? When you can, you, can you track that as well with your numbers? Yeah, we we we've started to look at that, and, and our data we you know go back, you know, about about 20 years, uh, and. Um, we can really we can see that it's it's been a long time. I mean, the Western Conference has been better for a long time. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when because you know you have to decide how much imbalance you really care about. But um, they, particularly that you know that Southwest Conference uh, that's been tough. That's been a dominant uh, division for a long time. Yeah, it's funny. We, what we noticed was, uh, and we what our. Um, our theory is that it's when Shaq came from from Orlando to L.A. Um, you know that seemed to shift. Even though the Bulls won the championships uh, immediately after that, um, it seemed like that was a nice shift. And then it was weird because there was there was one year in there where the East, I think, had a better uh, record or they did better. It was uh -huh. one of the LeBron Cleveland years originally. I don't know if you've seen that. I can't remember. That's like 08 or one of those. I mean, you know what it was? It was probably the big three uh, in Boston and then and Cleveland. Right. Uh, and then boom, went right back again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been such a long time that it's almost like, you know, it's funny because when I was growing up, for instance, like even going to baseball, the, the, um, the Indians were terrible. Um, and, and so were the Braves. The Braves were never like very good, right? And then I'm yeah. sure there's a whole generation after me who just assume the Braves are the most, cla you know, the classiest organization in the world. Dominant team, yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's funny how you get those different eras and the teams, the top teams change, but Certainly, over the last you know, you know, 15, 20 years, we're sort of used to the Western Conference being the, the, the by far the dominant conference. You know, with all the action, I mean, is it gonna is it gonna be analytics that's gonna finally turn it around? I mean, what is it? What, what do you think it's gonna take to get more balance there? I I don't know. I mean, because each team has you know, they, they since they obviously operate independently and they have their own styles. I I don't know. Like, is it just unlucky drafting? Uh, you know. Um, Better, you know, people just want to be out west, and you know, you have you happen to have a couple of owners who really want to spend with with, with Cuban. You have, you know, the LA teams. You people like to be in LA. I, I don't know what the root cause of it is, and so I, I you know, it's hard to know what is going to fix it. Uh, right. But but it sure is a real thing. Yeah, uh, it's it's really fascinating. So. Um... Let me look at it. Have you talked about uh, or looked at the draft and um, and and how much of a crapshoot that really is? Um, are there any kind of numbers you can look to see, like you know, it's just random, or or is there a pattern? Are some teams just are they the ones nailing it all the time? It's really hard to tell because you know the the, the people who run the drafts, um, you know, if they're if they don't have a couple of good years, they lose their job, or if they happen if a team happens to have a really good run. Then you know the people, a lot of the people, the scouts and, and the assistant GMs who are, who are you know instrumental in making those decisions, they get other jobs and they move to other teams. Um, so it's really hard to tell. I think that you know the draft is high risk for sure in the draft. I mean, you know, uh, odds of success are not great at at any position, you know, at any level of the draft. And so you know, teams teams that are really smart about drafting, have good systems, have good analytics supporting them. You know, analytics you know can help move the needle a little bit. Uh, it's certainly not a gold, a gold, a silver bullet in there. But um, you know, I think that's spreading and that's helping. But um, at the same time, you know, it, it, there's real. It's I, I don't I haven't seen anything that can definitively tell me that you know these teams are forever good at, at, at better at the draft than these other teams. 
because there's so much change over in the decision making. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the analytics and how you fit in with with, bat, with the NBA teams, because I think a lot of people would be curious to hear. Um, I take it that normally um, to get into the analysis side, you need to have several letters after your name after you graduate from college. Does that sound fair? Uh, I think more and more that's the case. Okay. Uh, I think that particularly as we start talking about the sport view data, the level of complexity of handling that data is rising significantly. I think there's been plenty, there have been analysts who have you know, done some really good work uh, with just undergraduate degrees or you know, good training, but even most of those guys who have done the really best, best of that work, they've been self-taught and so, so far beyond what they've done as undergraduates that, you know, you know, simply just being, you know, competent at Excel and having an, ec an undergraduate economics statistics course is really not going to cut it anymore. So, but here's what's interesting. So what I've noticed is I've talked to a bunch of people who are in those programs right now and getting their advanced degrees. And, um, you know, they, they can go into a lot of different fields, right? They can go into the economic yep. side. They can go into the medical uh, analysis. And uh, those fields pay a lot of money. Lot and so uh, th is, it, is it fair to say that it's not a, the incentive as far as money goes is not quite there if you want to go work for an NBA team? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's getting better. But, it re, you know, the teams have not committed to making sure that they have the best personnel in that area, no matter what. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't compete with, you know, the best analytic talents going to Google and LinkedIn and Twitter. And we're not paying anywhere near those levels. Uh, and so, you know, I had, I had one uh, intern when I was with the Cleveland Cavaliers who was literally could not have been a more perfect person to add to a basketball team full time. He played Division One basketball at BYU. He had a master's in, he was working on his master's in statistics. He was a great person. Uh, had personality, coaches loved him. Um, but when it came down to it, he was finishing his degree. He got a great offer to, to work in a, you know, outside of basketball. And, you know, he's he getting married, had kids, you know, like, you know, that's really understandable that you go chase that instead of, you know, you know, staying with basketball where he was going to wasn't going to make you know, even 50 percent of what he was going to get paid outside of it. So uh, what's going to take what's going to make that needle move? Is it when the uh, the, um, the the collective bargaining kicks in or the, uh, the the TV money kicks in and the uh, the salary caps go up? Or are the analysts going to get some of that pie? <laughs> I, I, I hope so. And I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that the, the, the sport view data sort of pushes the boundary a little bit. I don't think we're ever really going to compete with Google in terms of salary. For, for the analytics folks, but I think we can get closer. Uh, and I think that as teams realize that, you know, to gain the competitive advantage, they really need the very, very best. And so they need to pay somewhere in the ballpark that, of, of what the very best get. And that they're not, you know, they always talk about, well, you know, the, the GMs and all those, they started making nothing in the league. And that's fair, okay? They did, but they're op they didn't have somebody offering them six figures when they started making nothing. That's a harder choice to make when your choice is to go, you know, you know, coach high school basketball or work as an intern or, you know, whatever it is else, you know, this, the choices they had, they most of them did not have these choices that these personnel, these guys did, do right now. And so as that realization comes into play and as, you know, they see some teams succeeding uh, by hiring and paying a little bit more than other teams, um, you know, that will change and the salaries will start to come up. Interestingly enough, so when, when did you start? What season did you first start with the OKC doing analytics for them? So my first season was 2007-2008. Um, is that right? No. Yeah, so um, the 2008 draft was my first draft with the Thunder. So you must have been – it was probably still kind of rare, right, for teams to have a department or have analytics people involved, right? Yeah, it was. It was, it was, it was not a, a common thing then. When I started with the Thunder, there were, you know – maybe four teams that had anybody who was doing serious work that they, you know, considered in their draft evaluation process. Uh, it was a very new, new field. So it's not, was it like Wild West? You know, every day you're coming up with a new idea to try and implement because there wasn't a, a template before that? Yeah, to, to a certain extent, yes. You know, but um, more so it was about realizing the best way to get what, we ha what I had done actually used. Uh, because, you know, you can come up with ideas every day and, and new stuff and, and, and constantly innovate. But really, the innovation happens when it's used in the decision-making process, not when you think it up and build the model. Uh, and so you need to spend at least as much time explaining and talking and communicating with people uh, as you do developing new models. 
Well, let's talk about um, other sports for, for a minute. Now, at ESPN, you're kind of covering everybody? Yeah, we are. We are trying to you know, touch as many sports as we can. And uh, anything interesting on that end, too? I mean, are there, is there hockey analytics that we haven't talked to ever known about that you're discovering? Yeah, so the, the hockey analytics are starting to bubble up. We haven't done, my group hasn't done a lot of work in hockey yet. We've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of work in soccer. We've done a lot of work in football. Um, and, you know, we, we, people are threatening to do some work in cricket now. But, uh, <laughs> okay. um, but and the hockey stuff is definitely gaining more attention now than it, than it did even, you know, last year at this time. What's like soccer to me is a lot is very similar to basketball because you know a similar shaped field um, and and there's some movements that I've noted recognized that are similar as far as offense. Uh, do you, are you ever looking at these things going? Wow, that's the, that's the exact equivalent of something in basketball. Does that does that exist in other across sports? Yeah, I mean, sort of a lot of the concepts that you want to implement are are similar. You know, on a grand concept level, it's like you know, uh, win probability or scoring probability models. Those are important in, in so many sports, and and so we need to you know develop them and have them a, as strong as we can, uh, and then particularly as we get sort of this player tracking data where we're, we're watching the players move across across the the field or or the court, then you know understanding what those how those movements are, the sort of the tools and the techniques, the questions you want to ask about about defense, about how you know defensive you know movement impacts uh, scoring chances. Those are all. A lot of them are very similar across uh, sports, particularly sports like basketball and soccer, where it's very much a motion sport. Um, you know, we have some advantages in basketball, in which we have more events that are tracked. Uh, soccer, there are very, very few events that are actually tracked on a on a play-to-play basis, and their score scoring is so rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, certainly a lot of the questions and concepts we're we're going after are similar in, in soccer and in basketball. Well, let's um, talk a little bit about uh, this notion of the Knicks and, and they're playing the triangle offense. And, you know, for full disclosure, I'm a triangle offense coach and uh, learned it from Tex Winter. And, and I'm a very protective guy when, when it comes to criticism of it. Um, one thing that is interesting is that a lot of teams run aspects of the triangle. And yet when the Knicks are doing it as a pure form, we're hearing a lot of uh, banging of the drums saying how it's an antiquated offense. It's not designed for today's game. So I'm kind of curious what your take on that. I mean, have you looked at that all at, at all and, and gotten a, a sense of what that means and how it might not or might or might not fit into the, the, the modern game? Well, I think that, um, you know, there, it's hard to sometimes uh, separate the offense from the players running it uh, and, and sort of the results of it. And, and you, know, you know, when we look at the Knicks from a data perspective, what we can see right away is this huge, huge reliance on mid-range shots. Um, they take the, by far the most in the league. Uh, and from the analytics, you know, those tend to be less efficient shots. Well, we, we hang on for one second because I think we need to define mid-range. That's the other sure. frustrating thing to me. Sure. You know, what is mid-range? So, you know, you, take, you go beyond 10, 10 feet uh, up to the three-point line. You know, we're talking, you <laughs> okay. know, I, 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 want, I, want, I don't want those shots. I want shots in the paint. I want shots outside of three. Uh, and those, those are now. That's not to say that there aren't efficient mid-range shots. There are. There are some players who can take them and make them, for sure. Uh, and the situation really can dictate it. Like you know, if if a player is being pressured, you know, uh, and, and has a guy in his face and being content, the shots contested, the mid-range shot is not. It's hard to make that an efficient shot. Uh, if he's wide open, yeah, often a, a fairly good efficient shot to take. You know, for the right player. Um, so, you know, th- that, that's where I'm, I'm coming from, from looking at it. So I, you know, I want to find offenses and, and, and sets that will generate those. And, and the goal of those, the, the sets should be to get one of the, the, the most efficient shot possible, which we know tend to be you know, corner threes in the paint, regular three. Uh, those are the shots that we want to look for. And, and we, you know, we see the offenses that tend to be the most efficient tend to be the ones that they gravitate to those kinds of shots. Well, here's the here's the issue because you know I am an analytics guy. I like to use as much as I can of that, but I'm also an old school coach. Sure. And here's the thing that I have a problem with. So to me, like a, a 15 foot shot, if it's open, shouldn't be considered a, a four letter word. Right? <laughs> I mean, that is you know if Kyle Korver is going to come off a pin down for a 15 to 16 foot shot, like that that should be more preferable if it's open than than a three in my mind it, for him. Now for Kyle I guess Korver? Are, what. I know for Kyle Korver, I will. I'll, I'll argue there because he's so good from three that that I I want if he's got if I've got an open shot from 
from 15 feet or an open shot from three, give me the three with him every time. Okay, I guess if he's not going to shoot that much better from, from, you know, say he shoots 60% from two, that's 1.2 points. Right. He shoots 50% from three, that's one, you know, one and a half. Better off there. Okay, fair enough. Now, that said, um, you know, I think he would shoot better, obviously, from 15 feet open than he would three. Right. Oh, I mean, sure. You know, and so the the the, the at some point there's going to be a, a where it matches the efficiency, right? But Absolutely. here's the thing. But so, but you're right now, and and maybe you know for him to get those open threes, he has to curl into the 15 foot a few times to keep the defense honest, right? There's that notion. But yeah. but here's the thing: when you think about who gets these the long twos, for instance, which is the yeah. real you know the real taboo subject. Sure. Um, it's the guys that the t- the defense wants to shoot the long two right it's the carlos boozers and it's those kind of players who they're going to back off and say please shoot this wide open two which then influence the numbers to make it seem like it's not an efficient shot well i i think that there on a when you look at the, the data from a sort of macro level then yeah there is there is a bias there about who's actually taking those shots but then even when you just look at an individual player you and kyle corver is a great example and 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 i, and I totally agree with you that sort of the religion of never take a long two is is overdone there are always situations and there are you know you're right you know there maybe you need to take some long twos so you can open up the three later on but you know even Corver, you know as he is as he gets farther out obviously he gets less accurate and there is a tripping point at which you know it's better to uh you know to, to take that that two where he is more accurate even when on, on a wide open shot than he is from a wide open three but it's you know because of that extra point, it really you have to go pretty far in. I mean, is he gonna you know the example we just talked about was you know sixty percent from two, fifty percent from three. Better off taking the three. Eighty uh, percent from two, okay, then you're better off taking taking the two. But that's you know you really have to get to seventy a point where he's seventy five percent accurate for him to be better off at least you know equal to taking the two than he is to taking right. the three. Well, and I have no doubt that's probably what he shoots from a wide-open 15-footer, but I can also have no doubt that if you look at the numbers, he's probably gotten one wide-open 15-footer in three years or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So, so that's the other issue, right? Because, you know, the guys that who would be really good at shooting those and might tip the scales simply yeah. aren't going to get those shots because yeah. of that. But when you start talking about – here's where I get a little nervous is that you know, now we're, we're talking about training – and, and, and working on our offensive games to the point yeah. where now all you're going to work on is a three-point shot or finishing at the rim. And yeah. there is no other training because, again, what, we, what we're understanding is only threes, only at the rim, everything else bad. And <laughs> that's where it's troubling because Jeff Hornacek said it really well. He goes, you know, when you're playing in the playoffs and these defenses are really prepared and have multiple days, all you're going to get on a lot of your possessions are 15 to 18 to 19 foot shots. And if you're not prepared to make those and, and know how to do those and have that experience in the regular season, then you're going to have a hard time winning those games. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm all for having as many skills as possible. And certainly if, you know, you, know, you take it to an extreme uh, where everybody's employing this hard-nosed strategy of just paint and threes, then you open up this, well, if I'm the team that shoots a lot of mid-range, then defenses won't be ready for it. They won't know how to defend it because they don't defend it a lot. So there certainly are. I definitely want my players to be able to, to to have the experience to know how to take those shots, have the skills to do that. And if that's all we're going to get, great. But I don't want the, our offense to be designed to get uh, those shots. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, but here's the problem. Now, when we're looking at the Knicks, going back to them, yeah. um, you know, everyone was saying that they don't shoot. They shoot these long twos. They don't shoot threes. And at the time, before they traded away J.R. Smith and 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 Schumpert, uh, you know, I went and looked at the numbers in their per 48-minute three-point attempts. Yeah. And they were ranked 21st. Now, if they were 28th, 29th, 30th, 27th, whatever, I'd be like, okay, that's a pretty legitimate argument. But they were a lot closer to average in three-point attempts than they were last. And yet everyone was still going crazy about their, all these, these long twos. And so I wanted to throw up my hands and say, well, you know, okay, so then they traded those guys, and now they have guys like Travis Ware and Quincy Acey, like catching the ball in the wing and the, and the triangle. So but the, the next question then is, well, who on the team is taking these threes, <laughs> right? Who, who should be? You know, the, the offense is designed to get open shots, right? Yeah. And I talked to some analysts guys who say, well, simply make that Travis Ware 18-footer, make him go six feet farther, and he'll shoot a three, and it'll still be more efficient. 
And I, I know as a coach, it does not work that way. Certainly, if you're going to try in the middle of the season, it's not going to work that way. So that's the other question. I, I really, when people want to, you know, some, and by the way, it's, it's usually a, summar, a, a, a complete dismissal of Derek Fisher and the offense. Yep. Black and white, no question it's wrong. When in reality, you know, who do they have? Now, we got into an argument with, on Twitter, and like Mark Cuban chimed in about like, well, you know, um, uh, his player, uh, my goodness, my mind is going, from uh, Dallas, who's now on the Knicks, uh, um, from Spain. Um, you know. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'll tell you in a second. I was just talking yeah. his name. Anyway, and, and he's a really good three-point shooter, right? Um, but career-wise, he takes three a game. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like he's the guy who's going to be taking the eight, six or seven like you wanted to want from a normal modern offense like Kyle Korver. So I guess then it becomes a problem. You're criticizing this, but there's simply no other solution with a team like that and the players like that, right? Well, I, I mean, to a certain level, yes. There's a... a um, Personality is so important in the NBA. I mean, like, if you don't have great players, you're not going to be great. But the question is, how are you? How are we designing an offense? What is the, the the goal of the offense? Whether we're getting that or not, whether the defense is thwarting that or not, what's the goal of the offense? To what should each play be trying to get? And you know, the Wizards are another example. They they, they take very few threes. And and the argument, you know, is, well, they don't have a lot of three shooters. They don't have. They're, they're not good at it. Well. You don't have to be that good at threes to get to make them better than the long two. And if we're taking a lot of long twos, it seems like then that's how the offense is what the offense is geared to get. Uh, the beginning of the se- from the beginning of the season, you know, the Knicks may have been only 20, 21st in three point attempts per forty eight, but they were by far the highest percentage of their points were coming from mid range shots. It was something like 28 percent almost all season of their points are coming from mid range shots. You look at the Rockets. It's like seven percent. I mean, that's how dramatic the difference is. Now, now the Rockets are an extreme, but it's still it, it, it's not even close to the average, which is about seventeen percent. But okay, fine. So they're twenty-first for forty-eight with a three, and they're taking all these long twos. Guess where they're not taking a lot of shots from? Yeah, they're the not rim. getting the paint. So maybe that's the focus. And like that, okay, because then I'm like, okay, yeah, we're not, they're not getting penetration. They're not running their offense to the point where they're getting it either with a pass or a dribble. And, and then, you, okay, then, then that next progression is, well, who the heck is supposed to do that on this team? And, and yeah. I, think we, I think it was, by the way, the argument really is that it doesn't matter what the Knicks would run this year, right? <laughs> yes. They would be horrible on offense. The Knicks and, are not good. Right. It's like, so that's the other thing that's frustrating because now, you know, the triangle is getting the, the, the blame when yeah. it doesn't, you could run, you know, the Houston, you could do whatever you like and they were, no. the offensive rating would be low as low could be, right? Yeah. So that, that's where I get really frustrated. And by the way, it goes back to even, you know, and I don't want to use a triangle offense defense, but, you know, it's interesting. It goes back to like Kurt Rambis and uh, in Dallas, or sorry, in Minnesota. He didn't run a triangle more than 17% of the time. And, yep. and then it goes back to Dallas with Jim Clemens, and he wasn't running the triangle. They were running some weird, like, Princeton-y, high-post version of it. Yeah. And so it's like all of a sudden, you know, and then meanwhile, you watch, if you watch the Bulls, they run pure triangle, I would say, a quarter of the time. And you, you watch the, certainly the Warriors have a lot of you know, concepts, and certainly yeah. uh, I, we, even with the Hawks, they've tweaked some of the stuff. So like you said, um, so the notion of, like, you know, the mid-range could become a three-point shot. Um, you know, I guess I guess the real question then is, okay, like with Washington, is it a, a function of Randy Whitman simply not going out in the film and saying, hey, John Wall, you're curling here, and instead of going so tight, get a little farther out and you can shoot the three instead. I mean, I guess is that where we're at with this? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think, you you know, know where that three-point line is. You, so often you see guys who literally take two steps inside the three-point line to take a shot. And it will drive you as an as an analyst drives us crazy when we see it. Happens way too often during a game with, uh, with Washington or with like across the with country? Washington with with any team. I mean, like watching Cleveland last year, we, it was awful to watch. Dion and, and Kyrie both did it on a regular basis. And it's just like, what are you doing? Please just stay where you are to take the shot, and it'll be worth more. Um, but you know, but certainly you know, going back to the the triangle, like. Uh, the Knicks are certainly not an indictment of the triangle in any way. They're an indictment of that personnel group, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you can't you can't blame that on, on on the triangle for sure. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now, um, now well, here's another example, and I think we can wrap this up with this one. Is how about the Grizzlies? 
right? They don't have any three-point shooters, and hence they don't really shoot too many outside of, I think, Courtney Lee and Conley, you know, yeah. are, they're not high volume. Yeah. Um, they're, they were number one. They were leading the league for a while. They're number two, I think, right now in the West, and they're very, very tough. Yeah. Um, you know, so I guess, you know, it's not going to be a shocker if you tell me, oh, you don't have to shoot a lot of threes to win, right? I mean, that's not really like the end-all, be-all formula, right? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and the Grizzlies, uh, you know, first of all, they have great interior presence offensively. So, you know, they're, they, you know, if you can get a lot of, you know, I would take, take a dunk every time over a three-point shot. So, you know, paint shots are fantastic. They're just as, they're, they're as good, if not better, than, than the three. So that, they've got that. And, you know, they also win on tremendous defense. Uh, their offense was showing some signs of life this year, but it really never quite broke through to, the, you know, the level that, that, that you would expect. They're not a great offense. They're a tremendous defense. Um, and, and their offense is good enough to, to, to continue to win games. But um, there's certainly, you know, I, and again, you're right. You don't have to shoot the three. It helps a lot, though, even with a team like that, that, you know, they don't have a lot of great three shooters. Take, taking some, though, helps it, it opens up the court. Uh, it, it, they're more efficient. And, you know, then you go, go back down to the big guys in, in, in the paint. They, they'll score all day long. Well, you know, what's really funny, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out there, too. I was talking uh, the other day about Kentucky and how you could beat them. We did a breakdown of it where we talked about, you know, there's, I, I think I discovered one little thing where maybe we can, you can exploit. Um, and having been a high school coach going up against the, that version of Kentucky in my league, that, like, a team that had won like 90 straight conference games and they had, you know, huh. multiple Division I players all the time. Um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom, which was based in analytics, was slow the game down, limit yep. the possessions, and, um, you know, and try, and, and that, that's how you're going to compete when you're playing against a better team. Yep. And all it ever did was delay the inevitable and make my <laughs> players as timid as possible, right? Right, right. And so my take on it now, and I'm kind of upset because I wish – I wish I, would, I just would have had the balls to do this then, you know, and, and just sort of been free. And like, you know what? F it. We're going to lose by 30 anyway. Let's open it up five out and just start yeah. raining down threes. If we get hot, yeah. you know, whatever. And if we not, we're going to lose by 50 instead of 30, right? Yeah. So what's your take on that as far as when you're going up against, you know, uh, a much better team like that? Is that? Does that still exist with the limiting of the possessions? Well, the, the logic there is, you know, it, there's a probability logic there. Like, you know, if you if I were to have a three point shooting contest with with Kyle Korver, OK, uh, I would never win in a million years if we took 50 shots. Uh, if we took one shot, I got a chance. So that, that that's the probability logic there. Um, now, the, there's what you said about raining down threes. That's one thing. Uh, if we, again, if we can do that, but limit the number that, you know, we can design an offense to rain threes, but still limit the number of possessions. And that, so if you get hot, you don't have to get hot for the entire game to win it. You can get hot for, you know, a period of time and get, you know, take advantage of that while you can, because you're, you know, odds are you're not going to get hot for the entire game. I'm glad to hear you talking about getting hot because, we all know that there was, you know, people going back and forth about the hot hand or not. And I'm here to tell you and everybody else who wants to believe that there isn't one, that there is one. I've seen it. I've had it. <laughs> and uh, which also goes to the fact that, you know, the notion of like you're on the road and you're down by two. The analytics guys will say that in last possession, you must go for three. Yeah, you're going to lose in overtime, guaranteed on the road, right? And I'm like, well... That's nice, but what if my uh, point guard uh, sprained his ankle, my best screener fouled out, and my um, the best shooter I have, uh, his girlfriend broke up, with, uh, broke up with him that day. You know, <laughs> it's like a, a lot of good that does you know for me to think about. Okay, I'm gonna have to get that, and then also the notion of what I get nervous about is when they talk about oh you must shoot a three. It's not necessarily like okay throw the ball and let him shoot it right. The defense has something to say about it right. Yeah. So it becomes the process, which really becomes frustrating because you watch the Spurs, they'll go for the layup, right? It's wide open. And all of a sudden in the air, he throws it to the three and they win the game against Cleveland, you know, a few years ago. Yes. Because they've worked on that. And, yep. and the pass more specifically came from the basket area where you're already squared up. So that's where I get nervous when, when if people are going to take this wholesale and they lose the process of how to generate the good shot that will give you the results that the analytics guys say you'll get. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, it, it's difficult, you know, analytics guys often present rules, like you got to do this. Very few things that do we have the data to say, you actually have to 100% do this. 
that's the only way. It's a very human game. There's a lot of sort of variance around the numbers that we have. Uh, I think our, the, the data provides really good insight and says, you know, all things being equal, you should probably do this. But there's certainly instances, you know, uh, understanding your players, knowing what's happening, helps you understand the game in a different way. You, we can't, you can't take coaches out of it. Coaches are a huge part of the game, and that human element is a huge part of it. The psychological part of the game is a major part of the game. Uh, nowhere, we are nowhere near uh, being able to solve the game of basketball through data. And, uh, I, and I love the guy, the, the coach in the football, who, who onside kicks every time, right? Yes. And he figured out yeah. if you only get 18% or whatever, it's, it's a benefit. Yep. Well, how about I'm going to throw this out there last, for last thing. Uh, DeAndre Jordan, why don't they just practice missing that second free throw on purpose and try and get the rebound? Uh, well, because you're better off getting, getting, the, getting the point, I think. You know, he's... Well, what if you got an extra possession? Like, there's got to be a number there saying if you were to recover X percent, right, it becomes worth it. Maybe the teams would stop hacking it. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it, that's got to be quite a trick, though, to, 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 to find a place where he can actually, you know, hit the rim and still get they can still get the rebound. Uh, right. Well, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Like, no one's ever practiced that, right? Really. Like, I, I don't think we ever. But imagine if you could do it, and especially if you have Blake Griffin, put him at the at the top of the key, right? And, have him <laughs> and just run in. for it. I did that with my teams where we would do that. We would time it and we would do it all the time. Now, um, you know, the teams obviously would know that. And I wasn't doing it to miss on purpose. It's just if it missed, he'd be there. And if not, he's there to, to press press the ball and you know whatever but i don't know i i'm when i watch these games you know it's going to be brutal uh you're going to right when when the, when the clippers are up by an x amount of you know in the third or fourth quarters we're going to see these games go three hours right it, it, it could happen and perhaps the clippers better strategy is to practice the free throw shooting a little bit more and get that up <laughs> or, or or perhaps as a fail safe practice what happens if he does miss that second one and, and you know and, and maybe try to have blake griffin run at the rim at some point well, Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a terrific conversation. I love to continue having it more and more. Maybe we can, you know, you know, talk more about a whole lot of other things and other sports too, because I know people are interested in that. So, uh, again, uh, you know, a real pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? You in, Ben? Oh, I'm in, Coach. Thanks for having me on. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal art. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar! Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better.